Well, beloved congregation, when the Lord sends judgments upon his people, you would think that it would cause them to wake up. Sometimes the Lord does that in his great mercy in order to cause his church and people to confront their coldness, their backsliding, even their great sins and abominations. He sends judgments upon the earth in order to bring them back unto himself. And yet often the pattern is that this does not yield this effect. You can see it also in the history of the people of God under the Old Covenant. Last week we considered in particular the terrible um, fate that happened to the northern kingdom of Israel, those ten northern tribes who were led way into captivity by Assyria in 722 B.C., And though you do have some brief uh, reformations, some brief revivals that come as a result of this, what you see is that this is but the beginning of the Lord's judgment upon his people. For the southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin, uh, they begin to go into exile and successive invasions that take place uh, under a, a little over a century later. And then ultimately in 587 B.C., Judah as a whole is brought under captivity and Jerusalem itself is destroyed. A terrible end to that chapter of church history. And during the time in Babylon, in exile, how difficult it was for the true people of God, that remnant, to hold on to the faith of their fathers, to hold on to the covenant promises of their God. And yet in his time and in his purpose, the Lord brought that people back to, Israel, to the land of Israel. And you see that in the book of Ezra, how following the great decree of King Cyrus in 538, there are instructions given to return back and to rebuild the temple and to establish again that nation in the promised land. A great act of mercy from the hand of God. And it was tasked to that little remnant that was but a small shadow of their former glory to begin that process of building in the rubble. Can you imagine what it would have been to be those priests and Levites and the rest of the people of God as you build that altar in the place where it formerly stood for the sacrifices to begin once more? Can you imagine what it was to lay the foundation of that temple? And it was said, was it not in that chapter which we read, that those who could remember the former glory of that temple, when they saw how much smaller the new foundation was, some of them began to weep. And yet others shouted with joy, and so great was the sound that you couldn't tell one from the other. 
It was a singular privilege after such judgment to be among the people of God who would seek to rebuild, to seek to begin again from the ashes, to kindle the fire of true religion once more. And so often I feel that we ourselves fall in a similar position. We in a post-Christian, anti-Christian nation seeking to walk faithfully with the Lord, to seek his help to restore the years that the locusts have eaten, to build again where previous generations have departed from the word and the will of God. So it was that the high priest Joshua was numbered among that generation. He was tasked with that solemn responsibility to see to the rebuilding of that temple. And so it is that the prophet Zechariah, also among that number, records this episode. This episode in the life of Joshua, which is set forth before Zechariah as a vision, describing his own experience seeking to serve the Lord in the aftermath of such great judgment. I pray that the Lord would seal these things unto your heart as we examine them, and that something of this experience would resonate with the true people of God. With the Lord's help, let us consider this passage from Zechariah chapter 3, verses 1 to 5, and we will consider that under the theme, a filthy priest on trial. A filthy priest on trial. We will consider just two thoughts, Joshua's position and Joshua's advocate. Joshua's position and Joshua's advocate. Well, Zechariah is not the easiest book of the Bible to understand. If you try to work through it from left to right, you may at sometimes feel lost. Where is it that we are at? There are certainly things that point to the immediate restoration of the people of God under um, Zerubbabel and under Joshua. And there are others that go even further centuries later to the establishment of the new covenant under Jesus Christ. And yet this vision is reasonably easy to understand among these uh, visions that are given to Zechariah. There you have Joshua, one of the priests who we read about in the book of Ezra. He was there and he was um, tasked to serve the Lord. And you can see from the position that he is in in this vision that he is serving the Lord. It says in verse 1, And he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Now it's important to understand here that standing before the Lord is a common expression describing those who are paying divine service unto God in his sacred worship. You think, For example, how the Levites are described in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 10 and verse 8. At that time, the Lord separated the tribe of Levi to bear the ark 
of the covenant of the Lord to stand before the Lord, to minister unto him and to bless his name unto this day. You see it also in Second Chronicles 29, verse 11, also describing the Levites. My sons, be not now negligent, for the Lord hath chosen you to stand before him, to serve him, and that ye should minister unto him and burn incense. A solemn and a holy task in the presence of God to stand before him, serving him, worshiping him. It's something that we do well to consider also for ourselves. We come into this place not as a simple habit or as a hobby, but because we are in the presence of God. Wherever his people gather, wherever two or three are gathered, there is the Lord in the midst of them. And so it is that we may come into this place after a week of many thoughts that have passed through our head, and yet it is this mind that is in the presence of God. With our hands, we may have handled many objects, and yet these hands are in the presence of God. Our heart may have rested on many things in terms of delight and desire and other things, and yet our hearts are in the presence of God. The holy God who is a consuming fire, the great Jehovah, the great I am that I am, and we puny creatures stand before his presence. It can be an overwhelming thing, an overwhelming thing. If we were seeking to start up a business venture or to accomplish some kind of political program, then you or I might be able to put our minds together and think ourselves equal to this task, as though we can pull it off. But what we are seeking to do is to serve the Lord. We're seeking to bring glory to the great God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This covenant God is the one that we stand before. And so immediately we are in this position of Joshua. We are utterly astonished that he would use us for his purposes. So must it have been for Joshua. There he is, called out of exile, called out of Babylon, called out of that idolatrous place to put that first stone upon the rebuilded altar, to supervise those men who would be laying the foundation for the temple to be rebuilt, which would be the the very glue holding together that church of God in the promised land. A solemn and a holy thing. Let us never imagine that it is a small thing that we are seeking to do, as though what is involved in the worship and service of God is an insignificant matter. It is the sacred honor of God that is at stake. That is what we see in his position. He's standing before God, the Lord, but... Notice this as well. He is standing before him in filth. Standing before him in filth. 
Verse 3, Now Joshua was clothed with filthy garments and stood before the angel. The angel, of course, referring to that not created angel, but the uncreated angel, the true messenger of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, the Son of God himself. He is standing before the angel of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, in his pre-incarnate state. And he is doing so in filthy garments, filthy garments. We need to understand about the high priest and the other uh, priests is that they were to wear the most fine and clean and majestic garments that you could imagine. Sometimes you can read about all the details in Exodus chapter 28. And we read in verse 2, And thou shalt make holy garments for Aaron thy brother, for glory and for beauty. And thou shalt speak unto all that are wise-hearted, whom I have filled with the spirit of wisdom, that they may make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister unto me in the priest's office. And so you read on about the majestic breastplate and the belt and the robe and the um, the special uh, headgear that would be attached with that. And so it is that it was to be an impressive thing to look upon a priest. And yet, here in this vision, there is the high priest of the people, and he is clothed in filth, filthy garments. And, you know, studying the actual word in the Hebrew that's used in filth, and it's not even a word that you would see as polite to use from a pulpit, the most vile kind of filth that can be spoken of here. How could this be? There is the great high priest and he is covered in filth before the very presence of the Lord Christ himself. So it is that we come before the Lord not only as creatures but as sinners as sinners the moral defilement of our sins is held forth here and so it is as Isaiah himself spoke of it in Isaiah chapter 64 verse 6 but we are all as an unclean thing and all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags and we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away if he should mark iniquities, brothers and sisters, who among us could stand? How dare we come into the presence of a holy God? All the things that we have thought, all the things we have said, all the things we have done, all the things we have left undone. Do we imagine, like we considered last week, that he is blind, that his eyes are not in every place beholding the evil and the good. That was how it was with the people of God of old. And so Joshua, unlike those people who hardened their hearts in rebellion, 
who had no true fear of God as he is in the presence of God seeking to serve the Lord, seeking to do what the will of God says. He is acutely aware and feeling within himself that he is filthy. God is always there with the experience of the people of God, a dreadful sense of our own sin. I wonder if you've, you've heard of this condition that is uh, commonly described. It's called imposter syndrome. Imposter syndrome. Well, basically, it goes like this. Maybe you're training for a position or a job. Maybe you've been training for years and years and years, and you have such high view of those who have attained to that job, whether in, um, let's say, working at a hospital or working for a law firm or whatever it may be, and once the person actually attains to the position, no matter how much they may work and labor in that job, they feel as though they're an imposter, as though they don't really belong there, as though in some way they, their attainments are illegitimate. It could be a disorienting thing, and you have many people who suffer from great anxiety. I am an imposter. I don't really belong here. But so it can be also... Even with the true child of God, they feel as though they are an imposter. They feel as though they are fake. They feel as though they ought not to belong here because, oh, how great my sin is before the sight of a holy God. Surely the stench of my heinous transgressions will drive him away from my presence or else I will be driven away from his. So... It is before us here. He is in filthy garments. And so it can be especially acute when we seek to serve the Lord. If you would seek to do something for the Lord, then you may find that your conscience awakens and you are even more acutely aware of how far you fall short of the glory of God. But notice this in the third thing about his position. He is standing before the Lord, and he is filthy. But also this, he is accused by Satan. Accused by Satan. Verse 1, And he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to resist him. Here is the very prince of darkness himself, that fallen angel is fallen from the Lord's goodness, who is bent upon the destruction of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and all that it represents. He is utterly devoted to destruction and death, murder and lies. And yet here he is found in the position of an accuser, of a lawyer, Before a judge in a law court, there is the accused, Joshua, standing before the Lord, not only in service, but also, as it were, in the dock, in a position of an accused. And there is the accuser, there is the prosecution, there is Satan pointing his finger and saying, look at this filthy so-called priest, set apart unto your service, ha, One who is holy unto the Lord, ha. One who would bring glory unto your name, Lord, ha, ha, ha. 
Look at his filth. Look at his defilement. Look how wretched and pitiful he is. So it is the devil's role at all times to seek to so discourage the people of God and to bring them to the point of despair. So it is, he has different strategies. But what was his strategy in the days of the apostasy in the northern kingdom when there were uh, all of those idols being uh, predominated throughout the land, even in the sight of the watchtowers of the vineyards, when those children were being passed through the fire? Well, surely his strategy was to lull everyone to sleep. Do not notice. Do not pay attention. And now here that those who are zealous, who are true, who are seeking to be faithful are actually trying to do something in obedience to the Lord. What is his strategy now? But to attack, to dismay, to destroy any faith or hope among the people of God, to grind them down such that they would despair of ever knowing the grace and favor of God. Listen to what John Calvin said about this text. We wonder why so many enemies daily rage against us and why the whole world burn against us with such implacable hatred. And also why so many intrigues arise and so many assaults are made which have not been excited through provocation on our part. But the reason why we wonder is this, because we bear not in mind that we are fighting with the devil, the head and prince of the whole world. What is Calvin saying? Well, he's saying this, that should we be any... Should we have any kind of amazement at all that the whole world is in hatred against true Christians? Should we be any, uh, any astonished when indeed all of these different circumstances arise to discourage us and to drive us away from the true service of God? We have but only to remember that the prince of darkness is there. And he would have us to recognize that the cause is hopeless and we have but to turn back and go back to Babylon. That is always his ploy. And yet when we see this passage and we lay it all up, we see that something is amiss from Satan's case here. Yes, indeed, There is a puny creature, even a defiled creature, standing before the Lord and seeking to serve him. But notice how the Lord himself speaks in this case. And he speaks as an advocate. Look in the second place at Joshua's advocate. He is none other but the Lord Jesus Christ in his pre-incarnate state. He is the one mediator between God and man, the true messenger and angel of the Lord. Notice how he's spoken sometimes as the Lord and sometimes the angel of the Lord. So it is, he is sent from his Father and he is the true reflection of his Father's glory and yet he's equal unto the Father in all things, true and eternal God, and notice how he himself speaks. Praise be unto God. We have an advocate with the Father. 
We have one who would speak a defense in our place. Not that the devil gets the last word, but that this one who represents the church and people of God gets the last word. What does he say there in verse 2? The Lord said unto Satan, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Notice that wonderful defense that is made by our great Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And this is the first thing that he does. He rebukes the devil. And he says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord rebuke you. He doesn't have a long, elaborate argument. He doesn't try to trace through all of the different things that the devil may have partially right or partially wrong or entirely wrong. He just simply looks at the devil and says, the Lord rebuke you. It appears that our Lord Christ here speaks on behalf of his father and he summons the authority of God the Father and says, he will deal with you, Satan. He will put you under his people's feet. He will finally crush your head, O serpent, under my heel. And it will not matter one bit how it is that you cavil and complain and point and accuse at my people. No, I know that you are the enemy and I know that you are a liar and I know that you are a murderer. I know that you wander about seeking whom you may devour, but here I say very briefly and to the point, the Lord rebuke you. The devil knows his time is short, brothers and sisters. He knows that he is being prepared for that eternal lake of fire where the worm dieth not. He knows that the victory is won for Christ Jesus has indeed accomplished that victory through his death upon the cross. And so what does the devil have but to do but to creep around this world and seek to rob a bit of glory from Christ? Just a bit. If he may cause the people of God to despair of his mercy, if he may cause the people of God to grow slack in their duty, then he imagines he's accomplished something. The Lord says, the Lord rebuke you. The Lord will have the last word. The devil will not win. Notice how it is the basis of this rebuke has to do with the Lord's electing mercy. He says there, the Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. You know, those who would oppose this doctrine of election and place all of salvation hanging upon the but free will of man, those who would glory and extol the ability of man to save himself, here is the place at which they would stand in the place of the devil, and that is this, that they robbed the true child of God of his joy and comfort. What joy and comfort is there to know that you save yourself, that you can keep yourself saved, and that if you are especially righteous, you may not be lost? No comfort whatsoever. But the fact that you are chosen before the foundation of the world in Christ Jesus that he will not let even one of his precious people slip out of his hands, not one of his people for whom his blood was shed. That is the only 
true sure ground of comfort, to know that we have been appointed unto this eternal life, and so we cannot lose it. If we could lose our salvation, then surely we would. But the one who has so fled unto Christ and received of his mercy can never be lost. Why? Because God has chosen his church. He has chosen his people to the glory of his astonishing grace. Who can bring any charge to God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? This great work of salvation is in the mind and the purpose of God, inflexible, immovable, unchangeable, invincible, mighty, powerful, all-glorious. And so it is that the weak and feeble attacks of the devil will come entirely to nothing. Notice the striking phrase that is used. The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan, even the Lord that hath chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? He is a firebrand, this Joshua, and together with him all the people of God. Perhaps you've uh, seen that at a campfire. Maybe you've been um, uh, roasting some marshmallows along the campfire and as you're, you're roasting and roasting, maybe you stop to pay attention. And, and that stick, it, it becomes actually on fire. It's, it's a lit. And so it's going to burn up. It's going to be extinguished. It's going to be utterly consumed in the fire. And so what is you? You withdraw. You take it out. And you, and you, you cause the, the air to extinguish that flame. And so there it is. What was once about to be consumed has now been removed from that flame. But of course, it's not a perfect picture, is it? It's much more uh, well to picture a great group of sinners who plunge themselves into the great fire of God's wrath, who plunge themselves under the wrath and curse of God, willingly desiring what is foul and evil, willingly desiring to pledge headlong into hell. And there is the blessed Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who plunges himself into the wrath of God in order to embrace his people and church in his love and to draw them out of the fire of God's wrath and to bring them unto himself. Is not this a brand plucked out of the fire? Have I rescued this sinner for no cause? Have I endured the wrath of God for no reason? Surely not, says the Lord Jesus Christ. You be silent, Satan. This one for whom I have died, he is precious unto me. And so you must be silent. Praise be unto God that the Lord Jesus Christ has the final word over his people. Where would you be if you were left only with your own tormented thoughts and your tormented conscience and the devil's constant attack? Is it any wonder that so many are depressed? Is it so many that so is it any wonder that so many are in anguish? Is it any wonder that so many are in despair? And why is it? Because they have not this word from Christ. 
They will not attend to it. They will not grasp hold of it. They will not surely cling unto the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the one Savior who can rescue from such a condition. Well, the Lord defends him, but notice how the Lord comforts him. The Lord comforts this wretched, filthy Joshua. And notice how he does it first by a taking off, by a taking off there in verse 4. And he answered and spake unto those that stood before him, saying, Take away the filthy garments from him. Take them away, all this sin and defilement. Remove it from this priest. There's some discussion about how this unfolds. Perhaps it's the case that the Lord himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, he stands before him and he summons some of his messengers, some of his angels, to go and perform the deed. And you notice how it is that that doesn't just stop there, but it also goes with the being clothed. Being clothed there at the end of verse 4, he says, I will clothe thee with a change of raiment, with a change of clothing. And that really uh, is, doesn't do justice to the Hebrew there, or just as a change of clothing. It's more like rich robes, festive robes, glorious clothing will I will I put upon you? And at this point, even the prophet Zechariah, he seems to be so overwhelmed that he's led by the Holy Spirit to cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says in verse 5, Zechariah, and I said, let them put a fair meter or a, or a clean turban or a, a, a head um, attire upon his head. So they shall set a fair meter upon his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord stood by. So it is that there's this taking off of the filth and defilement. And there is the putting on of these clean robes. And what is it all about? What does it all represent? Well, he says there so plainly there in verse 4, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee. So it is that we remember that the same Lord Jesus is the one before whom was brought that paraplegic. And before he said, get up, take up your mat and walk, what did he say? He said, son, thy sins are forgiven thee. So simple, the Lord Jesus has this authority because he himself endured the fiery wrath of God in our place and he himself performed all righteousness and so he can clothe us in the wonderful, beautiful garments of his righteousness. Do not imagine, Christian, that there is any comfort to be had by trying to cobble together some kind of way of clothing your own sins. Maybe you imagine that you can be like Adam and Eve. You're under the conviction of sin and you know that you have broken covenant with your God. And so what it is that you imagine you can do? Well, you take some fig leaves and you try to clothe your nakedness. 
And what is it that you need? No, you don't need these filthy, paltry human efforts. No, you need the Lord himself to come unto you, to slay that animal and to use the, the uh, covering and the skin of that animal to deck you out with a, a proper turban to cover you utterly. So it is with God coming unto us with the gospel. He says, here is something most suitable to your filthy condition, and that is the perfect righteousness of my son. And what have we to do, brothers and sisters, but to receive it afresh or for the first time, even this wonderful good news of salvation, that there is covering for the defiled. Maybe you imagine that you can not be useful for God in our generation. You see the smoldering rubble all around us, the great acts of God's judgment upon our nation. You see the often weak condition of the church, and you say, there's nothing for me here, there's nothing for me to do, and surely with all of my problems, with all of my shortcomings, with all of my filthy transgressions, there's no place for me. Well, my friend, if you would look at yourself, you would come to a right conclusion. If indeed you would listen to date to the devil's whispers, you might think that he has a point. But if you would hear this word of Christ, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. I have chosen Jerusalem. I've chosen my church. I've chosen my people. And they are my brand from the fire. Well, then you have a sure and a solid basis to serve the Lord and that acceptably. And then you will be able to say with the prophet as he does in the prophecy of Isaiah, there in verse 10 of chapter 61, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he hath clothed me with the garments of salvation. He hath covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decked himself with ornaments.